This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, starting May 8th, wherever you get your podcasts. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. On June 13, 1985, another sticky summer workday at CIA headquarters slugged on. The agency's Washington men were sifting through reports from their agents in Rome or Mexico City. They were gossiping in hushed voices about potential recruits at the Soviet embassy. They were getting out final memos to case officers before a boozy lunch. The usual. But in Aldrich Ames' office, at the end of the gloomy counterintelligence hallway, something extraordinary was happening. Aldrich or Rick, as everyone called him, was sitting in front of a six-pound stack of documents. Even with his high security clearance and easy access as chief of the CIA's Soviet counterintelligence branch, it had taken weeks to amass. The stack was a complete set of dossiers on every Soviet working for the CIA, at least the ones Rick knew, and he was pretty sure he knew them all. Some of the documents were originals, some were copies, it didn't matter. The CIA was careless with its reams of paper. Nothing would be missed, Rick was sure. He was calm, confident, self-assured. He knew the CIA knew its blind spots. They'd never find him out, he thought. Anyway, it was too late to turn back now. He was already in too deep. He swept the paper into plastic bags. The bags he clicked into his briefcase. Nobody stopped him as he sauntered down the hall. He continued through the lobby. Still, not a single suspicious glance. Then, relief out the front doors. Rick Ames was carrying the largest set of documents ever smuggled out of CIA headquarters and he carried them straight to lunch with the KGB. This is Espionage, the ParCast original exploring the missions behind the world's most incredible spies and what brought their covert operations into the public eye. 
throughout this show, we'll explore real-world spy tactics required to impersonate, exploit, and infiltrate the most confidential places in the world. I'm Carter Roy. At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. So let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Head to Parcast.com slash merch for more information. This is our first episode on Aldrich Ames, CIA expert in Soviet intelligence turned KGB double agent. He stole more classified information than any other double agent in history other than Robert Hansen, all right under the nose of the CIA. He betrayed an entire generation of CIA Soviet intelligence recruits, and he made enormous sums of money doing it. This week... We'll follow Rick as he transforms from unimpressive CIA man stuck in the middle ranks of the agency to the KGB's most valuable asset. Next week, in part two, we'll explore the messy trail Rick's betrayal left behind and the equally messy CIA and FBI investigations into what was going wrong. Aldrich Hazen Ames was born for a life in the CIA, but he wasn't suited for it. His father was an agent, recruited in 1951, and Rick grew up steeped in agency culture. In the Ames household, father-son bonding meant conversations about counterintelligence, the KGB, and communism. When Rick was 16 in 1957, he spent the summer working as a clerk and a handyman at the agency, And when he flunked out of the University of Chicago after two years as a drama major, it wasn't long before he was back in D.C. applying for a full-time CIA job. The agency, to Rick, always seemed like a natural choice. In 1962, he started as a low-ranking full-time employee. In 1967, after finally earning an undergraduate degree in history from George Washington University, 26-year-old Rick entered the agency's training program for officers in the clandestine service. Unfortunately for Rick, though, the similarities between his career and his father's ran deep. Carlton Ames, for all the conversations about the KGB he shared with his son, was a lackluster agent with a persistent drinking problem. He never rose far in the CIA hierarchy. And Rick's career looked remarkably similar to his father's. His performance was tarnished by drinking, inattention to detail, and sloth that extended from his work into his personal appearance. His supervisors noted all this in persistently negative performance reports. According to Barry Royden, chief of the CIA from 1997 through 2001, A good spy shouldn't have a forceful personality, and he or she should be a people person. It's more important that the spy is discreet, professional, and competent. That wasn't Rick when he was sober, and it certainly wasn't him when he was drinking. In September 1983, at the age of 42, 
Rick Ames was assigned as chief of the counterintelligence branch of the CIA's Soviet division, operating out of the agency's headquarters in Langley, Virginia. The title sounded important and would have been in earlier generations of the CIA. Michelle Van Cleve, who served as the National Counterintelligence Executive under President George W. Bush, defines the work of U.S. counterintelligence as, quote, identifying, assessing, neutralizing, and exploiting the intelligence activities of foreign powers and other entities that seek to harm us, end quote. In other words, counterintelligence is about collecting intelligence on the intelligence of your enemies, and then figuring out how best to use that information to protect your own. It's mind-boggling, fascinating work. Practically speaking, for Rick in the Soviet wing of CIA counterintelligence, it meant strategizing CIA operations that used Soviet double agents, assessing whether would-be double agents had really switched loyalties to the U.S., recruiting new Soviet agents, and countering Soviet efforts to recruit informers. It was crucial work during the height of the Cold War, when the threat of atomic warfare meant the stakes of spy games were incredibly high. But by the mid-80s, counterintelligence, particularly the type focused on Moscow, had lost a lot of its glamour. When Ronald Reagan took office in 1981, his former campaign manager, Bill Casey, took over as director of the CIA. According to Robert C. McFarlane, President Reagan's national security advisor from 1983 to 1985, quote, Casey and his people at the agency didn't think much about counterintelligence. When they did think about it, they didn't think anything was broken, end quote. Their focus was on communism blossoming outside the Soviet Union and on recruiting foreign agents in countries like Nicaragua and Guatemala. Counterintelligence wasn't the path to a brilliant career in the agency. It became a backwater for semi-talented agency men, according to Tim Weiner, who won the Pulitzer Prize for his reporting and writing on American national security. Like any other old boys club, Weiner says, the agency barely ever really kicked anyone out, but it strategically buried its lackluster members in time-consuming, necessary, but unglamorous posts. So Rick Ames was poignantly aware that by being placed in Soviet counterintelligence, he was hidden away from the real action. By 1985, after more than 20 years in the agency, the old, endless game of spy versus spy had started to feel meaningless to him, especially after the USSR election of reform-minded Mikhail Gorbachev in 1985. Political relations between the US and the Soviets were starting to thaw. Rick wondered whether all this spycraft was doing anything to protect the American people. He thought not. Plus, Rick had always loved the drama and intrigue of working in the field, hobnobbing with spies at international posts. He'd been a poor case manager, yes, inept at recruiting spies, but he felt confident that he knew the CIA and the KGB too, as well as anyone in the agency. His talents were wasted, rotting away at this mediocre desk. But what characterized Rick's position in 1985 more than anything else 
was his need for money. He was in the midst of an expensive divorce with his first wife and drowning under the glitzy tastes of his new girlfriend, Maria del Rosario Casas Dupuy, not to mention his own expensive taste. He needed money and he needed it fast. For years, Rick had quietly contemplated turning mole. A mole, according to the International Spy Museum, is an agent of one organization sent to penetrate a specific intelligence agency by gaining employment. It is popularly used to describe anyone with a high-level position in one agency or government who, over a long-term period, passes information to their agency's enemy. For the CIA, even in 1985, the enemy was definitely the USSR. The Soviets were backing the South American communist groups Reagan's administration was focused on. Competition through proxy wars or regional conflicts that didn't directly involve the U.S. or the USSR was what kept the Cold War cold and the threat of nuclear war at bay. But the Soviets were still public enemy number one, and Rick had access to plenty of information they wanted. In April 1985, there was a crucial change in Rick's circumstances. He suddenly had not only the access, but the opportunity for betrayal. As part of a joint CIA and FBI task force, codenamed Courtship, Rick was tasked with trying to recruit one Sergei Tuvakin, a Soviet arms control expert. Trying to recruit an agent in this context was a relatively straightforward affair. Rick would wine and dine the target, glean what information he could, and keep a keen eye out for the smallest hint that the Soviet might be willing to turn informant. Once he had that hint, Rick's job was to coax and negotiate until Chavakin was won over. The job gave him easy FBI and CIA-approved access to a Soviet official. If he wanted to establish contact with the KGB and pass information to the enemy, here was his opportunity. The date was set. April 16, 1985, 4 p.m. Rick would be having a drink with Chuvakin under the protection of a false name in the guise of friendly diplomacy. Rick considered his dissatisfactions. What did he owe the CIA after all? He'd given his life to it. He was 43 years old. He'd spent almost 20 years as an agent. And what had he gotten in return? Not the glamorous assignments or paychecks he'd thought he'd have by now. Then there was his girlfriend, Maria. He wanted to marry her as soon as this wretched divorce came through. He wanted to support her in the style she expected, but he owed his wife so much in alimony, and he was responsible for covering all their mutual debts. He'd have nothing left. His $60,000 a year salary simply wouldn't cut it. It wasn't an easy mental leap to take from loyal career agency man to mole, and Rick might never have made it if not for another perfectly concurring event. As Rick was contemplating his upcoming meeting with Sergei Chivakin, the FBI was congratulating itself on the recruitment of two new informants inside the Soviet embassy in Washington, D.C., Lieutenant Colonel Valery Martinev and Major Sergei Matorin. 
but the CIA was suspicious. The counterintelligence agents were wondering if these new informants were the double agents they seemed to be, feeding accurate information to the U.S., or whether they were Soviet dangles. A dangle, according to the International Spy Museum, is, quote, a person sent by the intelligence agency of his or her own country who approaches a foreign intelligence agency in the hope of being recruited as a spy for the purpose of intelligence collection or disinformation, end quote. In layman's terms, they're fake double agents, still loyal to their own country or agency while appearing to betray it. If accepted into the arms of the enemy, they can both pass inside information back to their own agency and feed false or misleading information to the agency they're planted in. These two embassy recruits, Rick told himself, must be dangles. And if they were, well, then he had the perfect crime up his sleeve. Tell the Soviets that Martinev and Matorin had turned informant. If they truly were plants, this would be utterly useless information to the Soviets. They would already know the two agents were working with the FBI. But by handing over what looked to be two extremely valuable intelligence assets, Rick would be showing the KGB that he had inside info and he was willing to share it. They'd probably be willing to pay him for this less than useful information in the hope that he'd leak more secrets down the line. At the same time, Rick's betrayal wouldn't be harming the U.S. in any significant way. If Martinev and Matorin were triple agents, they were dangerous for the FBI to work with. Blowing their cover was in America's best interest. Rick would be fooling the two most powerful countries in the world and walking away richer, all without harming anyone. Now, this seemingly perfect crime was riddled with issues. If it turned out Rick was wrong and the two embassy workers were not actually dangles, he'd be throwing away an incredible intelligence source for the U.S. and putting Martinev and Matoran's lives in very real danger. But Rick ignored that possibility. When it was finally time for the meeting with Sergei Chuvakin, his mind was made up. Coming up, we'll follow the Soviet dinner meeting that changed Rick's life. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Now. Back to the story. On April 16th, just before 4 p.m., 
Rick arrived at an elegant hotel bar in Washington, D.C. for a meeting with Soviet agent Sergei Chavakin. Rick was already a few drinks deep, normal for him, especially before important meetings. With his liquid courage in his belly, he was ready. But where was Chavakin? Rick downed a vodka, then another. Almost an hour had passed. Still no Chuvakin. Almost 5 p.m. Still no sign. It was time to force the issue. Rick walked out of the hotel, down the street, and into the Soviet embassy. All the while, he was watched by the FBI detail that recorded every entrance and exit from the building. But once inside, he was invisible. The FBI's eyes couldn't breach Soviet walls, except through double agents like Martinev and Matorin. He went right up to the front desk and handed over an envelope. It was addressed to the top-ranking KGB officer in the embassy, Colonel Viktor Cherkashin. Then he walked out, went home, and waited. The envelope Rick had handed over contained three documents. One detailed the names of Martinev and Matorin and the fact that they had turned double agent for the CIA. The second was a page from a personnel directory of the CIA's Soviet division. Rick had highlighted his name and title, Aldrich H. Ames, Chief, Counterintelligence Branch. The third document was a request for $50,000. In the world of espionage, code names reign supreme. It was unusual to make an introduction with a real name, but Rick wanted to make it clear that his information was genuine and valuable, to indicate that he was a valuable potential asset for the Soviets, and to show that he was willing to put his fate in the hands of the enemy, a significant gesture of trust. For the Soviets, this envelope was a little hard to parse, they were skeptical of any apparent walk-in, and there was always a possibility that the agent was a dangle, working for the CIA while pretending to betray it, and Rick looked almost too good to be true. But the KGB, with approval from its so-called First Directorate, or Moscow headquarters, decided to trust Rick, at least for now. If he was willing to hand over more information, he would be an incredible source, one well worth cultivating and well worth an upfront investment of $50,000. Chuvakin called Rick and told him to come back to the embassy. Rick acted as carefully as he ever would in his career. He contacted the courtship task force responsible for Soviet recruitment, the same ones who had facilitated his planned meeting with Sergei Chavakin. The task force now gave Rick the go-ahead to meet with Chavakin as many times as he wished. They thought Chavakin was a promising recruit, if Rick could swing it. The only stipulation they gave was that Rick had to report each meeting to the FBI. This CIA and FBI approval gave Rick the official cover he needed. And on May 15th, he was back at the embassy in a small room, sitting across from Colonel Viktor Cherkashin, the top-ranking KGB officer at the Soviet embassy. Cherkashin passed him a note. The Soviets agreed to his terms. 
Sergei Chuvakin would be his cutout. A cutout, according to the International Spy Museum, is an agent who functions as an intermediary between a spy master and other sub-agents. The cutout is generally someone a spy can meet with relatively openly without arousing suspicion. Rick, armed with an effective cutout, was all set up for his game of betrayal. Two days later, Rick finally met Chivakin. The men sat down to their first long, boozy lunch, and Chivakin passed Rick a small package containing 500 $100 bills. Rick was elated. He'd done it. He had the money he needed. No one in the CIA or the FBI had a clue, and he was secure in the knowledge that he was too useful as a future asset for the KGB to betray him. But that confidence didn't last long. Within a week, Rick started to panic. The enormity of what he'd done struck him. This was a betrayal of the agency that had, in a sense, raised him. There was a possibility Martinev and Matoran hadn't been dangles, that they'd really been double agents for the CIA. And despite the Byzantium secretiveness of the KGB, there was a possibility that another KGB agent secretly working for the CIA might find out what Rick had done. They'd betray his game in a second, and the CIA would have no mercy. Rick had no real reason to fear that kind of betrayal. As the counterintelligence chief, he already had close tabs on every Soviet double agent of the CIA, or at least he thought he knew all of them. But panic haunted his walks through the CIA headquarters, his casual conversations with colleagues. He was walking through a dream and not a good one. But the $50,000 had come so easy. More money, he knew, was just beyond his grasp. So he made a radical decision. By the end of the month, Rick was preparing to betray every Soviet double agent working for the CIA, all in one go. June 13, 1985. Rick stuffed plastic bags of documents into inconspicuous shopping bags and walked into his second lunch with Sergei Chivakin. But this one was very different from the last. He wasn't playing a trick on the KGB. He was handing over the lives of at least 11 actual Soviet double agents working for the U.S. Many of them would be executed. A few would get away with life sentences in the gulag. But as Rick walked into the restaurant, swinging his shopping bag, he didn't think much about those lives. He never really would. To Rick, these agents were all playing the same high-stakes game that he was a game of betrayal and of consequences. What was most salient to Rick, as he guzzled back drinks and bantered with Chivakin, was that he was really delivering himself to his new Soviet masters. At the top of his stack of dossiers was a note that read, I'd like to continue this relationship. The KGB was now responsible for Rick's fate, for taking care of him with both money and protection from the CIA. He was a valuable source worth protecting, but the KGB had priorities that superseded even their most valuable spies. Eventually, Rick would realize that, 
and wish he'd done things differently. But he'd made his choice. There was no turning back. Chuvakin walked out of the lunch with the six-pound stack of documents Rick had walked in with. Rick, meanwhile, woke up the next morning to a CIA in crisis mode. The very same day he had lunch with Chavakin, the KGB arrested a CIA agent in Moscow. The agent handled a Soviet scientist who had been passing invaluable technological information on to the CIA, and someone had betrayed him. The CIA knew they must have a leak, but they had no idea where. This agent wasn't among the names Rick had given up. He knew as little about what was going on as anyone else, but the CIA was on the hunt for a mole, and Rick knew he'd get swept up in the search. It wasn't until August that the CIA got their first break. On August 1st, 1985, KGB Colonel Sergeyevich Yurchenko walked in the U.S. Embassy in Rome and defected to the United States. He was the highest-ranking KGB officer ever to do so. This was a major coup for the CIA. The information they could pull from Yurchenko about KGB spies, plans, and tactics would be invaluable. And Yurchenko's first brief interview in Rome finally gave them the information they needed to pin down their mole, or one of their moles. Rick, back in Washington, didn't know any of this, but he was about to find out. As Yurchenko boarded a plane en route to Washington, Rick's boss called him upstairs. Burton Gerber, head of the CIA's Soviet division, explained to Rick that Yurchenko was incoming, He'd already revealed crucial information that pointed straight at a CIA mole. Rick stared straight ahead, listening, gripped with fear. Gerber went on. The mole seemed to be Edward Lee Howard. Howard had worked for the CIA from 1981 to 1985 before getting fired for excessive drinking and drug abuse. Bitter and angry, he'd apparently handed the enemy everything he had learned while at the CIA. Rick would be in charge of Yurchenko's full debrief once he landed in Washington the next day. That was all Gerber needed to talk to him about. Rick was momentarily relieved. Yurchenko hadn't named him as a double agent. But as he left Gerber's office, the fear kicked back into high gear. Even if Yurchenko hadn't named him yet, he might have information that would hint at Rick's betrayal. Rick tried to reason that this was unlikely. Yorchenko's assignment for the past several years had focused on intelligence operations in Canada, not the U.S. But anything was possible. Rick went home and started to drink. It was a long night. And a late morning the next day. He was still drunk when he arrived on the tarmac to meet Yorchenko. Rick was facing a month and a half of meetings with Yorchenko, a CIA colleague and an FBI detail. There was a clear set of priorities for the CIA. According to Colin Thompson, Rick's colleague in the Soviet division, the first question they asked was always whether or not the Soviets were preparing an attack on the U.S. The second was about spies. 
who, where, and how the Soviets had swayed U.S. citizens to work for them. Third, they dig into the life history of the defector, learning everything they could about the Soviets. They'd ask randomly generated questions in an attempt to root out human error and make sure they asked the right questions. And, of course, they tried to determine if the defector was real or a dangle. But Rick had another personal agenda. He needed to determine if Yorchenko knew about any other CIA moles. Throughout the debriefing, the men used code names with one another. Rick was Art. Even if Yorchenko knew Rick Ames was the CIA's second mole, he would have had no way to know the man debriefing him was Rick Ames. So Rick had to poke and prod with extreme caution. If Yorchenko did have knowledge of a second mole, he had to make sure he didn't reveal that mole's name. One slip up, and Rick would find himself on the other side of the interrogation table. When we come back, we'll hear about Rick's meetings with Yorchenko and some other secret meetings he was conducting on the side. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Now, back to the story. Rick Ames' long days debriefing Sergeyevich Yorchenko began on August 2nd, 1985. They were grueling. Rick was terrified of teasing out the piece of intelligence that would doom him, the knowledge that he himself was a mole for the KGB. But that piece of intelligence didn't come. Within a few days, Rick felt more confident. By the time his 20 interviews with Yorchenko were completed, he felt sure he'd escaped, albeit narrowly. The fear didn't pull him back from his relationship with the KGB, had sent him deeper in. They were his only protection from the CIA now. He needed to make sure they continued to see his value. So, after the interviews were over, Rick began his double time. Everything Yorchenko revealed to Rick about the KGB, Rick fed back to the KGB. After the interviews were over, Rick planned to write up Yorchenko's confessions from memory into a second secret set of reports. He'd bring those reports in inconspicuous shopping bags to luncheons with Chavakin every other week. At the end of the meal, the shopping bag would leave the table with Chavakin and a small package full of cash would leave with Rick. In the end, Rick completely escaped detection. He was raking in money, tens of thousands of dollars, 
His divorce came through. He married his girlfriend, Maria, nine days later, and he was offered a new glamorous post out of the CIA's office in Rome beginning the following summer. No one can quite explain this job offer. It wasn't because he was impressing his superiors on the Yorchenko detail. In fact, his boss, Paul Redmond, was disgusted by his lazy attitude. But within the CIA, there was no culture of firing people unless something drastic happened. Instead, mediocre personnel were shuffled around, given second and third and fourth chances. The best explanation anyone in the CIA could give for Rick's new assignment is that they needed someone at the post, and Rick was at the right level to take it. He was, through absolutely no actions of his own, doing quite well within the CIA. And he was doing well with the KGB, too. At the end of October 1985, Javakin passed him a note stating that the KGB had set aside $2 million for him. That's worth over $4.5 million in today's dollars. Things were looking good. But the lies, secrecy, and intensive schedule were getting to him. He was drinking heavily. Details looked and felt foggy. At least he was moving off the Yorchenko case team in mid-September to prepare for his Rome assignment. He'd have nine months to study up on the Rome station's cases and take Italian classes at the CIA language school side by side with his new wife. But in the fog of those last weeks of work on the Yorchenko detail, for the CIA and KGB alike, Rick got careless. He stopped reporting his luncheons with Chavakin to the FBI. It was an error propelled by the same inattention to detail that peppered Rick's performance reports. The FBI, of course, noticed. They tracked every member of the Soviet embassy, and they didn't like unauthorized meetings. John F. Lewis Jr., who ran the FBI's Special Operations Squad in 1985, explains that there's a very simple reason for this. It's, quote, so that we don't expend manpower to try to identify an unknown contact. I personally have spent at least a week following a guy around one time, and finally, I identified him by following him into CIA headquarters, end quote. The FBI saw Rick arrive for one of his unreported luncheons with Chavakin. After identifying Rick as a CIA agent, they sent him a query about the meeting and his failure to report. He didn't respond. The FBI sent at least two more queries to the agency asking for information about these meetings. Again, they got no response. Then, the queries simply stopped. The FBI gave up. This is quite an extraordinary thing. And it hints at something that would go on to play a major role in Rick's life as a double agent. The FBI and CIA's poor relationship and communication. Tim Weiner, a Pulitzer Prize winner for his reporting on national security, explains that the tension came in part from cultural differences. The CIA was the glamorous, secretive, elitist little brother of the rule-following, staid, police-like FBI and they resented one another for their differences. An example, 
As soon as the CIA had a full description of its mole from Yorchenko, they quickly pinpointed Agent Edward Lee Howard as their leak. But they waited several days to tell the FBI who the culprit was, and as a result, Howard was able to escape the U.S. and make it safely to Russia. The FBI is responsible for espionage-related investigations and arrests within the U.S., an area in which the CIA has no authority, especially for counterintelligence work, cooperation between the organizations is essential. But in the 80s, it simply wasn't there. Within a few months though, the CIA and FBI alike would have far worse losses to contend with than Howard. On November 2nd, 1985, Yorchenko, prized defector, disappeared. He reappeared two days later at the Soviet embassy. He had re-defected and was ready to return to his homeland. He was telling the press that he'd never defected in the first place. He had been kidnapped and manipulated by the CIA. The U.S. was a terrible, evil place, but he had finally managed to slip his captors and escape to the welcoming arms of the USSR. It was a brilliant turnaround and no one can say for sure whether the whole defection had been a ruse or whether Yorchenko had simply changed his mind about his loyalties and decided he wanted to go home. Within the government and intelligence agencies, there was no consensus. But this was just the first loss, and to the CIA, far from the most mysterious. Martinev, the FBI's recruit in the Soviet embassy whom Rick had betrayed back in April, was sent home to Moscow with Yorchenko's Soviet detail in late 1985. The KGB had waited to take action on Rick's intel, a classic, cautious counterintelligence move. And to the CIA, the smooth, subtle recall didn't raise any suspicion. Agents moved around all the time, and it was natural that some of the embassy's agents would accompany Yorchenko back to Moscow. But then, once he was back in the USSR, Martinev disappeared. The CIA would eventually learn that he'd been executed. Rick had been wrong. Those first two double agents he'd betrayed hadn't been dangles, and they paid for his betrayal with their lives. Over the course of the next two months, four more Soviets working for the CIA would be quietly moved, called back to Moscow or transferred to posts where they could be secreted away without fanfare. They all disappeared. Paul Redmond, who would replace Rick as chief of the Soviet counterintelligence office, felt a sinking suspicion. They had a leak. The suspicion flowed up the CIA chain of command to Director of Covert Operations Claire George, Chief of Counterintelligence Gus Hathaway, and Soviet Division Chief Burton Gerber. At first, they whispered that perhaps it was nothing. Then they wondered if their identified mole, Edward Lee Howard, had betrayed these assets. But by December, there was no denying it. It was clear these leaks couldn't be remnants of Howard's betrayal. He hadn't known about all these agents. This was something new. They took the news to the top. 
Bill Casey, head of the CIA. They needed to find this leak and fast before their entire stable of Soviet agents was out of commission. George, Hathaway, Gerber, and everyone who knew about the crisis knew there were three possible reasons for a leak. One, sloppy work on the part of agents and handlers. Two, a technical penetration. Or three, a human penetration, a mole. George and his people were fairly certain this was more than mere accident and coincidence. That left the second two reasons, technical or human penetration. George sent Milt Bearden, Gerber's deputy in the Soviet division, to Moscow. He'd go directly to the Moscow station chief. The two of them would bring together the CIA's Washington and Moscow intel and insight. Then they'd start formulating a plan. Rick, meanwhile, flew to Bogota for Christmas with his wife Maria, who was Colombian. While there, in a meeting set up through Chavakin, Rick would meet his official KGB handler for the first time. And that is the officer from Moscow headquarters who was overseeing his case. They discussed plans for his new job in Rome, specifically his new cutout in the new city. Rick was excited to discuss exactly how and when he'd get his hands on the $2 million the Soviets had set aside for him. But he had come to love his meetings with the KGB for reasons that went beyond money. The Soviets made him feel appreciated and important, something he'd never felt at the CIA. He was part of the in-group with the KGB after never having quite made it into the CIA's old boys club. But his bliss, as he boarded his plane for Bogota, was a product of ignorance. He'd been passing his days taking Italian lessons and reading up on the Rome office in September, and he was completely unaware of what was happening at CIA headquarters. He knew nothing about the double agents getting snatched up by the Soviets, and even less about the small group of top men assembling to figure out why. But he was about to find out. Next week, we'll learn more about Rick's slow, lavish downfall, the convoluted CIA and FBI investigations that circled him, and the permanent impact the Rick Ames case had on the role and power of the CIA. For more information on Aldrich Ames, amongst the many sources we used, we found Betrayal, the story of Aldrich Ames, an American spy, by David Johnston, Neil Lewis, and Tim Weiner, extremely helpful to our research. Thank you for listening to Espionage. We'll be back Friday with a new episode. You can find more episodes of Espionage, as well as all of ParCast's other shows, on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll be back next week with another deep dive into the world of clandestine operation.
Espionage was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Russell Nash, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Carly Madden and Maggie Admire. Espionage is written by Nora Battelle. I'm Carter Roy. <laughs>